Hi, I'm Pastor T.K. Anderson with Entrusted Ministries. I'm happy to be your Bible teacher on this great station for today's program. We are in the middle of a fantastic series entitled Freedom, Living Above Your Circumstance. And this study is a look at Paul's prison letters. These are letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to brand new Christians in the cities of Philippi, Ephesus, and Colossae. This message series is also a part of my newest book by the same name, and I'd love to send you a copy of the new book. I think it'll be a tremendous blessing to you in your walk with Christ. All you have to do is go to our website, that's entrusted.tv, entrusted.tv, and at our website, just put in a donation for any amount, and I'll make sure the team sends out a copy to you right away. Also, next year, in May of 2024, Along with my church family in Monterey, California, you're invited to join us for a trip to the Holy Land. It's going to be a fabulous time to see for yourself the land of the Bible. In fact, all the information is available for you at entrusted.tv. If you've never been to Israel, this trip I know will be a tremendous blessing to you. Well, thank you for listening today, and I really hope this message is an encouragement to you, and I'll be sure to catch up with you at the end of today's message. Thanks for listening. Who can I trust in a skeptical world? Solzhenitsyn was born in Russia in 1917. In fact, a year before his birth, the Bolshevik Revolution paved the way for what we know as the Soviet Union. Having been born into this newly formed communist regime, Solzhenitsyn understood the dangers of a totalitarian rule. And throughout the 1950s and the 1960s, he wrote of its dangers and ultimately was imprisoned and exiled from his home country. Later in life, he returned to his Christian faith, and he remained a staunch critic of the Soviet Union until its final collapse in 1991. But his story is a strong reminder to us that once truth becomes disoriented in a culture, truth can be lost. Solzhenitsyn argued that the de-Christianization of the Russian culture was responsible for the revolution, which ultimately gave rise to global communism. In fact, he once stated the following, Over a half century ago, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen my country. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have actually spent 50 years working on the history of our revolution, and if I were asked today to formulate the main cause that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why this has happened. Hmm. Has that ever happened to you in your personal life? Have you forgotten God during a part of your life's journey? Maybe you're in that position here today. And like the people of Russia, was it at that point things began to unravel in your life? If so, you're not alone because it has happened to many people throughout history. In fact, whole organizations and even churches, cultures, and as we just learned, whole countries. When we forget God, we lose the truth. You see, Colossae was a town that was stirring with idol worship and pagan gods and these new followers of Jesus were being led astray by influencers. 
People who were convincing and charismatic and cryptic. Epaphras, a friend of Paul, shares this challenging news with Paul in a Roman jail. And Paul knows instantly a letter needs to be sent to set their hearts and their minds at ease of what we should do. It's a letter detailing how we can trust when everything around us is cracked and confusing and conflicting. A letter that still applies to our culture today, in fact, gives each and every one of us here in this room today clear direction for our personal life as well. In this passage before us, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 20, Paul lays out for us six features describing the divinity of Jesus Christ, based exclusively upon another early hymn of the church. You might remember we ran into an early hymn in the book of Philippians. We're going to run into another one here in the book of Colossians. And the lesson for us here is that Christ's divine kingdom is actually greater than all the kingdoms on this world, and he alone reigns supreme above it all. And so what's the first thing we learn in our passage today? Well, the first thing we learn is we can trust Jesus in the midst of a skeptical world because he is the icon of God, the icon of God. Let's check it out here in verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you have your notes with you today, underline that word image or circle that word. It's the operative word here in the passage. You see, in the original language, Paul actually uses a word pronounced icon for the word we translate as image. And it's the same root word for the word icon as well. So what this means is that God is no longer a mystery for us. When Jesus came to planet Earth, humans finally had a chance to see God in the flesh. We don't look at statues when we worship God because we have the image of God through Christ in the flesh. It's interesting, though, because we like icons, don't we? Icons help us remember what things represent. You know, there's an interesting exchange that I discovered this week in Matthew chapter 22 between Jesus and a group of religious leaders. They essentially were attempting to trick Jesus through a conversation about should they pay taxes or not to Caesar. I mean, everybody loves to pay taxes, right? The people of the ancient world were no different than us. So they were trying to trick Jesus. It was a setup. Jesus, knowing what they were up to, he asked them to go get a coin. And then he asks them what I think is one of the most impactful questions in the entire Bible. They hand him a coin. Jesus holds it up and he says this, whose image is on this coin? Matthew chapter 22, verse 20. In another translation, he continues by saying, whose picture and title are stamped on it? That's interesting, isn't it? Well, they respond, Caesar. And then Jesus gives them this famous line. Well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. In other words, pay your taxes and give your life over to God. You know, I often thought this would have been a perfect time for Jesus to ask them, whose image is stamped upon your soul? Now, Jesus didn't ask that question, but that doesn't stop me from asking that question today. Whose image is stamped upon your soul? That's interesting, isn't it? You see, in times of darkness, when our life is disoriented, or in times of cultural unease and a multitude of skeptical views, we, as God's children, can look deep inside, can look into our hearts and into our souls, and we know we have the image of God stamped upon our hearts. What does that mean? Consider this. Just as much as those coins with the image of Caesar belong to Caesar, 
How much more do we who have accepted Christ into our life now belong to him? It's a great thought, isn't it? God is the, Jesus is the icon of God. The second thing we learn is we can trust Jesus in the midst of a skeptical world because he is the imminent authority throughout all of creation. Second half of verse 15 continues and says, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. So underline that word firstborn or circle that or highlight that in your notes. You know, the world talks a lot about authority uh, today, doesn't it? Who has it? Um, How can I get it? Um, Are those in authority abusing it? Kind of reminded me of a story I heard uh, about an old rancher in the state of Texas. Uh, DEA, or drug enforcement officer, stopped by uh, a ranch and spoke to the old rancher. And he told the rancher, uh, I need to inspect your ranch for illegally grown drugs. And the rancher said, okay, but don't go into that field over there. Well, the DEA officer didn't like that, and he exploded and said to him, listen here, mister, I have the authority of the federal government with me. And he reached into his back pocket and he pulled out a badge and he proudly displayed his badge to the rancher and said, do you see this badge? This badge means I'm allowed to go anywhere I want to go on your property. No questions asked, no answers given. Have I made myself clear? Do you understand me? Well, the rancher kind of shrugged his shoulders, nodded politely and apologized and went about his work. Well, a short time later, the old rancher heard loud screams and he saw the DEA officer running for his life being chased by the rancher's 2,000-pound bull. (laughs) With every step, the bull gained ground, and the officer started looking like he might actually get gored before he reached safety. The officer was clearly terrified. Well, the old rancher threw down his tools, he ran to the fence, and yelled at the top of his lungs, Your badge, officer! Show him your badge! Uh, that's a good one, isn't it? I like that one. That's funny. But see, that's the funny thing about authority, isn't it? Everybody wants it. But the reality is, if you have authority without the wisdom to handle it, it often ends up in a catastrophe. Isn't that true? We can all think about that in our lives, huh? And when it comes to knowing and exercising the truth, the one with authority should be the one who is the most trustworthy. Isn't that true as well? And that's really what Paul's getting at here in this second point found in the text. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. That means he becomes the imminent authority over everything we could ever possibly see, hear, or interact with. Now, some people have asked, well, what does this phrase firstborn mean? So we'll dive into that here just for a second. Firstborn in this context means to be first in authority, not in birth order. You see, the firstborn doesn't have to be a firstborn child. For example, a firstborn male could be younger than his older sisters. What the Bible actually is teaching us here is that Christ has all the authority of a firstborn from the Heavenly Father. That means that when we go to the Father and we pray in Jesus' name, we are now going under the authority over all creation. That's the person of Jesus. So what does that mean? I think it's great encouragement to us because as we go through situations that seem to be overpowering for us, we know that we can go to the one who has the power over it all. You see, Jesus is the one who can deliver us. He's the one who can save us. He's the one who can revive us and restore us. 
He's the one who has the ultimate authority in this world. There's nobody else. He's the one. And we can trust that he ultimately knows how to use his authority wisely in our life. We can trust him. So that's the second thing we learn. What's the third thing? The third thing we learn is we can trust Jesus in the midst of a skeptical world because he, according to the text, is the instrument of life. Let's check out this verse, verse 16. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created. Circle that phrase, all things, or underline that. We're going to come back to that in just a a moment. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things, here it is again, circle that a second time. It's going to be important. All things were created through him and for him, through him and for him. You know, there are a lot of discussions these days on the origin of life. Who should get credit for it? God, science, chance, you know, evolution. Where did we come from and how did it all begin? If you think about it, if we're just a product of time plus matter plus chance, then everything you and I conclude about life, about meaning and purpose, literally is all for nothing. It's just every person for himself. But if the Bible is correct in Genesis 1.1, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, then that means that God has a say in my life and how I should live it and how I should enjoy it and how I can be in eternity with him one day. And in the text here, Paul's confronting a very real worldview of the Greco-Roman period. These were people who credited creative powers to angelic beings, um, elements, and astral powers. Paul was putting all of that worldly philosophy to rest by declaring there was only one instrument in the universe of life, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. You see, friend, we're not the first culture to wrestle with this issue of creation, and we won't be the last. But the Bible is abundantly clear that it's Jesus who is the creator of all things, and all things were created for him too. Have you ever thought about that? All things are created by him, and all things are created for him. That's interesting because that means that you, my friend, were created by Jesus for Jesus. What does that mean? Well, that means you're not a mistake. That means you're not a mishap. You're not an afterthought. You're not an oops. According to the Bible, all life is created by him and for him. You and I are a part of that all things in the text that I asked you to circle a little bit earlier. That's pretty cool. So what does that mean to me in my day-to-day life? It means I don't have to worry about anything visible or invisible. I don't have to worry about any dominion or ruler or authority doing anything to me or against me that does not first move through the hand of God. Because everything is subject. Everything is subject to his sovereignty in my life. Everything is subject to his divine authority. And that's what Paul's getting at here. And that's why we can trust Jesus. All right, what's the next thing we learn? The next thing we learn is we can trust Jesus in the midst of a skeptical world because he is the irrefutable Lord. We pick back up here in verse 18. And he, meaning Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He's the head of the body. 
You know, there are a lot of things that you and I can argue about in life, right? Some of them are important, but to be honest, most things we argue about are trivial. Isn't that true? A mother uh, was preparing pancakes for her son, uh, Kevin and Ryan, age five and three, and the boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake. And the mother saw this, obviously, as an opportunity to teach them uh, a good lesson. And so she said to her boys, you know, boys, if Jesus was sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake and I can wait. So Kevin, not wanting to miss the opportunity, turned to his younger brother and said, hey, Ryan, I have an idea. You be Jesus. (laughs) You know, it's one thing to argue over a batch of pancakes, right? But it's a whole other thing to argue over who has control over your life, isn't it? You know, in the city of Colossae, Paul was dealing with what I call influencers. They were religious teachers, false religious leaders. They were placing systems and structures and secret knowledge above Christ as the head of the church. And according to this verse, there is only one boss, and his name is Jesus. That's it. And sometimes I think that's important for us to remember as Christians that Christ is the one who is ultimately the head of the church. He's the one who's in control. And we get into way too many church scuffles trying to assert who's in charge, don't we? I don't have anybody in mind, so don't send me any emails today, okay, or tomorrow, this week. We say things, though, to each other like, that's my committee, right? That's my area. That's my ministry. And if we're not careful, we begin to act as if we're the one in charge and not Jesus. And so many church battles could be avoided by simply remembering whose church this really is. It all belongs to Jesus, folks. And in the light of eternity, if you want to take a look at a wide scope, in the light of eternity, you and I, we are just caretakers of this ministry for a short period of time, for as long as he wants us here, right? Isn't that true? It's all his. Our job is to be faithful stewards with what he's given us and the moments he's given to us. Isn't that true? So we tend to do the same thing in our personal life too, though. We say things to God like, this is my personal time. These are my personal funds, or that's just the way I say things. And we have to be careful on that logic, because if Jesus is the Lord of the church, and you're a member of his body, then that means he's the Lord of your personal life as well. So that gives us all something to consider this week to work on. Okay, what's the fifth thing that we learn? The fifth thing we learn is we can trust Jesus in the midst of a skeptical world because he is the incarnation of the Godhead, the incarnation of the Godhead. Again, this is a very robust and full passage. We'll just spend a couple minutes here. But for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Go ahead and underline or circle that phrase, fullness of God. He's the incarnation of the Godhead. Let me give you an illustration. There is a painting in a a famous palace in Rome by the artist Guido Reni. And it's painted into the ceiling of a dome that's 100 feet high. And if you are to stand at floor level and look upward, the painting seems to be surrounded by a fog and the image is unclear. However, in the center of this great dome room is a huge mirror which in its reflection picks up the picture. And by looking into the mirror, you can see the picture with great clarity. Comparably, Jesus Christ, born in a manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, is the mirror of God. 
And it's in Jesus that we see a clear reflection of the Father. I don't take my word for that. Jesus actually had a discussion about this with one of his disciples named Philip in John chapter 14, verse 9. Let's see what he said. He says to Philip, Have I been with you all this time, and yet you still don't know who I am? Well, who am I? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's what Jesus said. We get a clear reflection. He's the incarnation of the Godhead. Somebody once asked, Why did God come to earth and dwell among us? The great reformer, theologian Martin Luther, who lived in the 1500s, wrote the following to answer the question. He said, I would not have you contemplate the deity of Christ or the majesty of Christ, but rather his flesh. Look upon the baby, Jesus, because divinity may terrify a man. Inexpressible majesty will crush him. That is why Christ took on humanity, that he should not terrify us, but rather with love and favor he should console us. Isn't that great? It's a great summary. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Jesus understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So that means that God understands what you are going through. You see, friend, we don't serve a God who is unconnected to our reality. We don't serve a God who doesn't know what it's like to take a loss or to face betrayal or to be lied about. Jesus faced all of these things and more, and yet he got through it all. He conquered life. Life didn't conquer him. And as you and I follow him and put our trust in him, he will give us the power to help us along the way as well. That's one of the reasons you can trust Jesus. He's walked in your shoes. Okay, what's the final thing? The final thing we learn is we can trust Jesus in the midst of a skeptical world because he is the intermediary between God and man. Between God and man. What's it say in verse 20? And through Jesus to reconcile to the Father all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. You know, one of the things that I've learned uh, in life is that we're pretty good at pretending. Isn't that true? You know, we've mastered the ability to become chameleons if we need to. And not all the time, right? But there are simple times when we've learned how to put on an appropriate face or uh, we know how to adjust our appearance and behavior to either fit in or if we want to in an attempt to influence others to get what we want. I think we all learn how to do that growing up. But in this last portion of our text, this connects us to the reality of who Jesus really is. And although you and I as human beings can fake it till we make it, so to speak, Jesus, he's not like that. He doesn't have to fake anything. We learn in verse 20 that Jesus is the one who's the true reconciler in humanity to the Father. In fact, he is the only reconciler between us and our Heavenly Father. The unique difference between Jesus and all other religious systems and attempts that man has in order to earn favor or to merit favor with God is the way in which it's set up. In man's way, in all religious systems, it's our way to climb the ladder to get to God. It's always some sort of an achievement or something I have to do. Only in Christ are we saying, the Bible teaches, that it's God who climbed down to be with his creation. He's the one who brings it all together. 
I heard it once explained when Jesus hung on the cross, it's as if he took one hand up to the Father and one hand down to us and he reconciled and brings us together. There is nothing more for you and I to do because it's already been done. So what does that mean to me to know that God is reconciling me to himself through Christ? It means that our identity can be found in him. As I've mentioned a few weeks ago, I think this is one of the most pressing problems facing our culture today. We live in a culture that is suffering from an identity crisis. Where do I put my identity? How do people perceive me? How can I change it? Who am I? All of these things. And when you get reconciled back to your creator, guess what? You don't need to create an identity anymore. You don't need to manufacture one. You don't need to uphold one. You don't need to manage one. You don't need to be constantly reinventing yourself to other people. You can be exactly who God made you to be as you follow Christ. You know, many people spend their entire lives, entire lives searching for hope, searching and hoping and longing for peace and love and acceptance and security and forgiveness. And while they search the world and come up empty-handed, Jesus is standing here the entire time with his arms wide open, ready to receive you into the family of God. Can I encourage you, friend? Don't wait another day. Don't wait another moment. Come to Christ in the humility of heart and bow the knee of your heart to the lordship of Jesus Christ and allow his sacrifice upon the cross that we celebrated earlier in our time of communion, allow his sacrifice to reconcile you back to your heavenly father and become the person God's designed you to be. Will you do that today? Will you do that today? Hey, thank you for listening to today's message. I really hope you were encouraged by God's word and that your faith was strengthened. I don't know what you're going through today, but with God's help and with all the resources of heaven behind you, I know that God is more than able to meet you right where you're at today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray for those listening today. I pray that your goodness and your greatness will surround them in a powerful way. I pray for your protection and your provision in their life. May your peace guard their heart and mind until the day of Jesus' return, or until you call us home. Bless us today as we serve you with our whole heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Andrew? You've been listening to Entrusted Ministries with Pastor T.K. Anderson of Compass Church in Monterey County, California. Entrusted Ministries is provided to you by partners just like you across the country. If you'd like to help us to continue to share the love of Jesus with the world, you can go to entrusted.tv. That's entrusted.tv to make a donation. And remember, for a gift of any amount, we'll send you a copy of Pastor Anderson's newest book, Freedom, Living Above Your Circumstance. Thank you for listening and see you next week at this same time on this same station.